message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, this morning we're going to pick up our series uh, in the book of Galatians and wrapping up that series next week. This past week I was out of town once again. I don't normally travel that much, but I was at our denominational annual assembly in Memphis, Tennessee, and busy through the week once again. And so we've got another guest preacher this morning. We've got one of our ruling elders, Garfield Green, who is going to come and continue our series in the book of Galatians. And so Garfield would invite you forward now and For those of you that are interested in hearing an update about General Assembly, our denominational meeting that happened this past week, we're going to have an informational meeting next week after the service in the cafeteria where I will update you and answer any questions you might have about the actions and the deliberations that happened this past week at that assembly. Uh, But for now, thank you, Garfield, for being here and preaching to us. We're going to be looking at the last chapter of, the beginning of the last chapter of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. Otherwise, it's printed in the bulletin for you. As we come to this last chapter, Paul's going to be giving some uh, practical bits of advice. Sort of, what do you do now with some of the information that you've been given? Um, And I want to take a look at the first thing that Paul says here. That uh, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And lay some groundwork here and pin down some definitions. So I don't want to see what Paul is saying as a sort of a passing phrase, but rather as an important part of the conclusion that he's going to be drawing here. Uh, And so the definitions that we kind of need to pin down are, what is sin? How do we define sin? How do we know what sin is? And what are false definitions of sin? Who are these spiritual people that Paul is talking about? And what is restoration? And I want to talk first about the issue of, uh, or the concept of fine-tuning. Some of you may be familiar with this concept. It's a a fairly recent concept in um, apologetics and scientific circles. And the, the idea is, is that... Scientists and people generally used to think that there were um, fairly, relatively few conditions for life to exist here on our planet. But the more that we've learned, we realize that there are hundreds of thousands, probably millions, of very narrow biological, physical, astronomical conditions for life to even exist as we know it on Earth. It's it really the more we learn, the more it becomes miraculous that life exists on our, our planet at all. And learning these things and, and and looking deeply into them help also gives us a helps give us a, a healthy skepticism for folks who um, like to put forward doomsday scenarios that have become very popular in the last few decades or so. So, for example, I remember somebody talking about how um, the Earth loses a certain amount of, of water into outer space uh, every, every day. And that if this continued, you know, the, the idea was that we essentially become a desert planet, an uninhabitable Tatooine, but without cool speeders or Jedis. But one of the things that that science also has shown us, which was failed to mention there as you build a doomsday scenario, is this really remarkable fact that 4,000 comets every day hit the Earth's atmosphere. Every day, replenishing, and think of these as like large, dirty space snowballs, but they replenish almost exactly the water that's lost due to uh, atmospheric evaporation. And when you begin to think of it on, on, on a large scale, it's staggering 
precision, because this didn't just happen yesterday, right? but the day before, and for decades, for centuries, for millennia upon millennia, 4,000 comets hit the atmosphere every day, replacing the water that we lose. It's an example of fine-tuning how God has orchestrated the world to work so that it is sustained. Now, comets hitting the earth are one thing, but a large asteroid, let's say, or a meteor hitting the earth would, would cause massive devastation. And so the question naturally arises, well, why don't more asteroids, meteors hit the earth? And the answer Absolutely fascinating. To me, one of the greatest scientific discoveries of the the last couple of decades. And this is the reason why more comets or asteroids and meteors don't hit the Earth. Because Jupiter and Saturn exist as gas giants and in their specific orbital relation to the Earth. What what we know is that these, these gas giants, because they're a mass, massive gravitational pull are able to pull in just a phenomenal amount of space debris and asteroids that would potentially otherwise hit the Earth. Because they're gas giants, they're able to absorb these impacts. And because of their rotational relation or orbital relation to the Earth, they they, they pull in like these massive sweepers. And so a growing number of scientists are saying, look, if Saturn and Jupiter did not exist, life on Earth simply would not, could not exist um, which was staggering, right? This is fine-tuning on a, on, a, on a cosmic scale. Can you imagine the, the timing and precision it takes to orchestrate all these things? But that's what God does in, in, in fine-tuning and taking care for the creation, specifically for life here on earth, where he has made man in his image and where he has sent his son to die for our sins. Now, occasionally, uh, 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 an asteroid or a meteor will get through. The, the most recent one, at least that I'm aware of, was in 1908, a meteor about the size of this gym, actually, so if you can imagine, a little bit larger, not too much larger. It, it hit um, over rural Siberia. It actually exploded right before it hit the ground, and when it did, it, it instantly incinerated 80 million trees, like a thousand square miles of destruction, almost, almost instantly. You can imagine something that, that destructive. Occasionally, things like what the ancients would call destruction from the heavens would occur, which brings us to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So for decades, scientists, many archaeologists, not all, many archaeologists, thought that the, the story of biblical Sodom must be a myth. And they thought it was a myth because nobody had really ever found the ancient city, despite a century of looking throughout Israel, nobody had found what um, the, the city that would show that, the, that level of destruction. But in the early 2000s, there was a biblical, biblically faithful archaeologist by the name of Stephen Collins, and he had been pouring over the scriptures. He said, guys, I, I don't think you're looking in the right place because where you're looking is not where the Bible says Sodom would have been one of these cities on the plain. As he was driving around, he saw this, this large, it was called a tell, which is a large mounded area where, where ancient cities would be. He said, I think that's where we should be looking. And he got permission um, in the early 2000s from the nation of Israel to begin an archaeological excavation. And so they put together a team, and as they began digging, the first thing that they, they noticed um, was that there was, as they were trying to get down to the time frame that would correspond when Sodom was destroyed, there was a layer of about 700 years where nobody had built, no civilization existed on this area. And the Egyptian archaeologist said, oh, you know, we had 
have had legends that, that, that this area was considered so accursed. Like for seven centuries, nobody wanted to be affiliated with it. Nobody, nobody built there. But as they, they got down to the level that would have corresponded to the time frame of biblical Sodom, there, was a, there were a couple things that the archaeologists remarked on. The first was um, the stench of ash was still present. And the second thing that they remarked was that they had never in all of their time as archaeologists seen anything on an archaeological site that was so massively destroyed. They, they said it was like somebody took a galactic size blender and threw in homes and people and livestock, everything you'd find in a city, and just blended it up and poured it against these massive city embankments. And then as they, early on in the dig, one of the archaeologists, he uncovered this piece of pottery, and it had this beautiful green glaze on it. And when the lead archaeologist, Stephen Collins, saw it, he said his heart sank, because he knew that nobody was glazing pottery with the sophistication at the time frame that Sodom existed. But one of his assistant archaeologists said, you know, you're going to think this is crazy. He said, but I used to work at the, uh, the labs at Los Almos at the Trinity test site where they dropped nuclear bombs. And he said, I'm telling you, that looks like Trinitite. Now, Trinitite is what happens when you drop a nuclear bomb and it explodes right above the surface of the earth, and it'll turn portions of the earth, the sandy portions, to just a green glass. And he said, man, let's, let's go. So they took the, the pottery to the, the labs at Los Amos, New Mexico. And when they got there, the scientists at Los Amos said, where'd you get Trinitite? You're not supposed to have that. And they said, well, we don't know. We're on an archaeological dig. We want you to analyze it. So 48 hours later, it comes back. And they say, guys, we don't know where you got this, but what you have is 100%. This is Trinitite. Where did you get this? And Collins responded, we just discovered Biblical Sodom. It's one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of, of the century, I think. The, the excavation actually is still going on. They've recently uncovered the gates uh, of Sodom. If you can imagine the gates where, where Lot and where Abraham would have been. The point of this, though, is this. Is that God takes sin seriously. And if you ask the question, does God take sin seriously? Does, does the intensity of a nuclear blast over a city that was steeped in and engaged in sin that hurt people, that that took pride in, in harming people. Does that seem serious? Yes. God also correspondingly takes redemption serious, and, and we'll get there. <clears throat> but before we do, we have to have had laid this groundwork, does God take sin seriously? And then ask the question, so if he does, how do we define sin, right? What Do we define sin as um, whatever our society says is sin is sin? Now, there are a lot of folks who take that approach. If the society says, hey, these things are good and these things are bad, then these things are good and bad. So do we, do we follow our society? And I think you would know that the answer is no, right? In, in our current cultural condition, there are people who would say, look, it's okay, it's appropriate even to teach even very young children about sexually deviant material or to have a drag queen read a, a story to your child at the local library. But these things are, are not acceptable if you know what God says sin is and sin is not. So I could take a hundred examples, and, and keep in mind this is just one of hundreds of possible examples, but it's particularly relevant to our cultural moment and to this month. And so 
If someone asked me, would I use transgendered pronouns, the answer would be no. And it would be no because it is a sin against the ninth commandment, which is don't bear false witness. It, is, it is, encourages people to sin against the tenth commandment, which is do not covet, to covet a body they can't have and could never have. It is a sin against the creation ordinance. It is a sin against image bearing. It's a sin against a believer's uh, encouragement to progressively be sanctified in the gospel. And it is a falsification of the gospel that we could be new people in Christ. It cheapens redemption, it tramples on the blood of Christ, and it fails to love my neighbor as myself. That's why. But to get there, right, you've got to know what God says. You've got to have a standard. And so we might ask, well, what about the Galatians? They were living in a different culture. Would they have looked to Rome, what was considered appropriate in their culture, um, to determine what... uh, to be able to identify sin. And, and again, just to reiterate that the purpose of being able to identify it is so that you can appropriately get to the solution, and the solution is restoration. But the Galatians, so they're living in Rome. Now, keep in mind, they couldn't have gone to, um, let's say, uh, any of the written gospels or the book of Romans. I mean, th- when, when Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians, that was there, there may have been the, the letter of James existing. Otherwise, there was no New Testament. This was probably other than the second. This is probably the second letter written in the New Testament. James may have existed, possibly one of other Paul's letters, but otherwise, they wouldn't have had another source New Testament to go to. But they would have had the Bible that Jesus used, right? And they would have known because they were Christians that Jesus was the fulfillment of the sacrificial law, the fulfillment of ceremonial law. They would have known through Peter that uh, the, the dietary laws were fulfilled. But, but the moral law that God was using as a guide, and, and again, I mean, Paul's laid a lot of groundwork establishing the fact that it is not through law-keeping. It is not, um, it, it, your, your works don't save you. The, the, the law doesn't save you. It is the gospel, it is grace that saves you. But nonetheless, they still needed to be ident- identified Right, what the problem was or what the sin is, what a transgression is in order to get to the restoration. But the Galatians wouldn't have looked to their culture. Here's another interesting archaeological fact about Rome. When archaeologists are um, doing excavations in, in Roman colonies or old Roman cities, they could with a high degree of probability um, identify when they had discovered a, a house of ill repute or brothel. And how they would know this is that it was a slightly larger home with many small rooms that was generally near an area where um, particularly military personnel would congregate. Sorry, any military people in here. Um, but that's an, that isn't exactly how they would know. What would let them know exactly what they had found was that in the back courtyard of these homes, as they would begin excavations, what they would find inevitably would be hundreds of skeletons of babies, mostly newborn. They're horrific. The archaeologists who were on those digs described them as tremendously emotionally difficult. But the Galatians, that was a part of the culture that they were in. But thank God that they did not let the culture define for them acceptable modes of behavior. Because they didn't, they were able to start orphanages and redeem people and, um, and change the world around them to show others what it meant to, to care for humans who were made in the image of God, to seek out redemption. Right? So um, They were not ones who were bound to their culture. They, they had something beyond it that was 
going to allow them to get to the restoration part. And so one other groundwork issue on this. I'm going to ask a question. Don't answer out loud. You might know the answer. You might not know the answer. The, the question is this. Who was the first president of the United States? Now, in 1776, July 4, 1776, we declared independence. Um, and we're going to be celebrating that soon. But the, um, we, we did actually have a president of Congress at the time. His name was first and largest on the Declaration of Independence. So his name was John Hancock. But shortly thereafter, the Articles of Confederation were, were constituted. And, and then in 1789, 13 years later, um, we elected, under the current Constitution, a man named George Washington, who was really remarkable. But prior to Washington, there were 10 men who served as President of the United States under the Articles of Confederation. The first man who did was a man named Samuel Huntington. Now, Huntington was a remarkable individual. He was um, a self-taught lawyer, but he was the son of a Puritan farmer, and he married the daughter of a well-known Puritan preacher in the day. Uh, the Puritan preacher's name was Ebenezer Devotion. And I just want to say that if you're going to be a Puritan preacher, you should be named Ebenezer Devotion because it's just a phenomenal name for a Puritan preacher. But his wife's name was Martha Devotion. And he was a remarkable, remarkable individual. He, um, uh, like, like, like all of these 10 men, there used to be a, an exhibit of all 10 of these, these presidents prior to Washington at the Smithsonian. They've since taken it down. But the, the man who served as the fourth president of the United States prior to Washington, man by the name of Elias Bounot, was the, the son of, or uh, descendant of, uh, Huguenot, French Huguenots. And he also was the founder of the American Bible Society. But if you were fortunate enough to be at Samuel Huntington's home, um, he, the, his, his wife liked to encourage him to do this sort of parlor trick. So if he, you had his Bible and you took a pen, like a needle, and you poked it into a word on his Bible and then lifted it up to see how many pages down it went, he could tell you what word it hit. Isn't that cool? But it wasn't because he was an innate genius. It was because he poured over the scriptures constantly. In fact, of these 10 men, one of them, um, Washington called the father of our country, since a term since applied to Washington. I don't mean to take anything away from Washington. He was remarkable. But so were these men before him. And the reason that I bring that up is because as you take all of the writings of the founders together, the deists, the Christians, the agnostics, if you take all of them together, and you look and you say, what did they reference more than anything else as they were trying to put together a system of governance that would throw off tyranny, that would bring the most human happiness and flourishing um, and peace? And as you take all of their writings together, one book, one book more than any other they reference. It wasn't John Locke. It wasn't a political theory. It was the book of Deuteronomy. Because whether they were Christians or whether they were not Christians or they were deists, they could still recognize that everybody needed a standard that was fixed like a North Star, right, in order to solve the problem of sin. Now, those who were not Christians wouldn't ever get to the redemption part, and that was sort of the, the essential part. So a lot of groundwork to, to say this. There are large portions of the church that are dying because they are ashamed or embarrassed to point to the Word of God as the standard by which we can identify the problems, not only in the hearts of individuals, but everything around us, and then in turn work toward an appropriate solution for restoration. 
So when Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, well, who are those? Who are those people? Well, luckily, we've had many, many weeks of sermons on who those spiritual people are. And in short, it's just this. If your life is manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, you are that spiritual person. So if the fruit of the Spirit are present in your life, Paul is talking to you here. You should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And this is so important. So as we, we get to this point, we're, we need, what the church needs, is people who are able to say, I have a firm and fixed standard. I can identify. But, but what we don't focus on is the sin, right? The focus is on the restoration. Right? Whatever you focus on, that's what sort of magnifies. And so what Paul is saying here is, look, we don't need a bunch of moral busybodies. We're not trying to control people's behavior. And when somebody is caught in sin, it's not the job to berate them or condemn them or beat them down. What we need, right, is people who are manifesting spiritual fruit in their life in order to bring restoration as Paul says in Corinthians, we are, are, are tasked with a ministry of reconciliation. Right? Is it Lewis, I think C.S. Lewis had once said, you know, there's nothing quite so awful as a moral busybody. Um, and, and that's not the point, right? The point isn't to be people who, who can identify all kinds of sin all over the place, but people who can appropriately identify in order to focus on the restoration, because the restoration, that's the point. And in a spirit of gentleness. And I'll, I'll, a bit of, I'll tell you how I approach this in my parenting. Um, is, and not perfectly, by the way, but if, as my children are out of line, out of bounds, um, and, I, and I recognize that, that there's a broken relationship, whether it's a relationship broken with me or a relationship broken with God, there's a broken relationship. And so my overarching uh, uh, theology is to is to bring restoration to that situation. So when my children need discipline, I'm not going to just punish them, and I'm not going to send them off to think about what they did wrong, and, uh, which often means just sort of justifying their actions in their own minds. What I'm going to do is try to restore them, restore them in fellowship with me, restore them in fellowship with God. I don't do this perfect. They'll tell you I don't do this perfect, but the overarching idea is restoration. I want to restore what's been broken. And, and that's how we approach it also with, with the church, is that when we are able to identify that there's brokenness, right? And, and we have to know what, it is, what brokenness is and what it is not, then, then we approach it with a sense of, of restoration. <clears throat> Paul says, if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his I'm sorry, let me back up. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not as in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. And I don't want you to think that there's a lot of tension here. So Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ and everyone should carry his own load. And if that seems like there's some tension there, think of it this way. What the church desires, what God desires for the church is people being built up in the spirit so that they are able to bear one another's burdens. Because if you have an entire group of people who simply can't um, 
bear even their own burden, then it's very difficult to begin bearing the burdens of other people. Now, we will all need our burdens borne at some time, and the church is here for that. When we have pastors, we have elders, we have many loving people filled with the Spirit, and if you have a burden and you, you feel like you need that burden to be borne, shared, the church is the place to be, to help carry those burdens. But we don't want to just be a place where everybody's just broken. We want to be a place where God is working restoration in the lives of a community right? so that we are being built up in the spirit. So we're able those, we're those who are able to bear one another's burdens as we have our own born. There's also a call here to take responsibility and ownership for your relationship with God and to not assume that spectator Christianity gets you there, right? This is a call to, 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 um, to follow Christ he says, the one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so this question, why especially to the household of faith? Why not especially to those in the world that are perishing? For this reason. For the same reason that if you are in an airplane and the pressure in the cabin begins to depressurize, you put the oxygen mask on your own face first and then on the children's faces because you can help them in a way that they cannot help you. And the world needs the church. The world needs a strong, robust, spiritually mature church who is seeking restoration, who is building up one another in Christ, pointing people to restoration. I mean, if you want a type of Christianity that does the heavy lifting, that really makes a difference in the world, that changes families and communities and, and, and the world, I mean, this is what Paul is giving us here at the letter of Galatians, of all the foundational work that he's built, pointing us to Christ. He says, now take that, right, and carry that forward as a strong church, knowing what it means to bring redemption and restoration to the world. And so my encouragement to you is this, be filled with the Spirit. Take all of the sermons that have already been preached on this and know that the world needs you, the church needs you, Spirit-filled people, because the world needs, because people need restoration in their relationship with God. So go from here, be filled with the Spirit, and be a blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your spirit. We thank you for giving us Christ. We thank you, Father, um, for the church. We pray that you would help us to bear one another's burdens and in turn to bear the burdens of others who are broken. Help us to see transgression for the purpose of being able to restore people. Help us to restore people in a spirit of gentleness. Father, I pray for this church specifically that you would um, fill us to overflowing with your spirit, that the fruit that we would bear would be a joy and a delight to all in this congregation <clears throat> and to everyone in our community. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.